next we have Adam Pedramo, who is the founder and CEO of Control Yourself, Inc., and has been doing, as Bradley said, incredibly important work in the area of free network services, uh, not only as part of the autonomous group and helping define to define philosophically and in practical guideline terms what that means, but also in the tangible form of Identica, the free software, free network service, microblogging uh, competitor or replacement for the Twitter that has been in the media so much lately. So please welcome Evan. Hi, everybody. Okay, does that, does that look okay? Yeah, wow, that, that, that was the best AV experience I've had at, at, at a talk in a long time. Um, I've had some really bad ones lately, so I think this is going to be a really good talk. Um, my name's Evan. Uh, as you said, I'm, I, I've been involved with free software for a long time as an activist, as a user, as a developer. Um, probably the two things that people know me best for are Wiki Travel, which is a open content travel guide. I call it Wikipedia meets Lonely Planet, um, and uh, which I started a few years ago. And the second thing that I'm uh, known for in the last year is Identica. Um, I, I uh, also am a member of the Autonomous Group, and uh, that's been a really big inspiration for me uh, since last year's uh, event. Um, Free network services has become a really huge part of my life. Um, so, and it's the way I make my living now, strangely enough. Um, what do we mean by free network services? What are we trying to do? What, what do we want to get to? Um, what we want is to use network services in a way that preserves our freedom in the same way that something, something, I guess I ran out of time there. In the same way that using free software on a desktop or a server it, um, gives us freedom. So we want to use uh, network services in ways that gives us the same uh, freedoms that we expect out of free software. Um, <clears throat> what do we mean, mean by free network services? Um, by free network services, uh, kind of, we're, we're not sure. We're not entirely sure yet. This is still kind of gelling, but we have a couple of ideas. Uh, the Franklin Street Statement, we try and say that uh, free software and free data is going to get us to a free service. We're not sure if that's exactly all that free service is going to be, but we think that's going to be a necessary, if not sufficient, um, combination. For the open software service definition, which is a little bit more robust um, and definitive, um, it requires free software, free culture or data uh, license, and uh, open standards. They actually uh, require open standards to be part of your um, software. Um, so this is kind of, you know, for those of us who use uh, free software today, uh, those of us who have a full free software stack on our uh, desktop or um, uh, uh, laptop system, uh, this is kind of the sandwich we live with uh, today. You know, down here on the bottom, we've got uh, our, our client. We have a free operating system, free GUI framework, free browser, free plugins. Everything's so free. And up on the server that people are, you know, offering services to, they're almost all using, you know, the people who are professionally using non-free operating systems is, is pretty low. Uh, people are using free operating systems, free web server, our great Apache web server, free database servers, uh, free programming languages. Um, we just have this little blue line in the middle of the sandwich, you know, um, that's a, that our services harnessing internet technology. I need to pick up an acronym for that because that's not a very good. <laughs> but anyway, we've got this sandwich that we're supposed to eat. And 
Yeah, still, still not sure on that. If you have some ideas on that one, I could uh, just come up later. Um, so what can we do to, to fix this uh, situation? We need to find some tasty fillings for that sandwich um, to replace these services that are harnessing Internet technology. Um, we need to be using them ourselves because uh, as we use these uh, services, especially in a social web, uh, in a social uh, internet world, we're showing th their importance and we encourage their use to others. Um, what advantage do we have uh, as we're building these services? Uh, fortunately, we're, we're doing the right thing when we do this, but also um, we, we give a lot more to users. Users know that they're, um, uh, the, the work that they do uh, on these services is going to live longer than, say, the lifetime of a startup company. Um, that they will have control of their own systems. Uh, we put software into the hands of entrepreneurs uh, and, and let them develop these services uh, in a way that they can you know, further their own business or uh, personal ideas. And also we're put, um, we let people take control in a way that lets them show off um, uh, in, in ways that they can if they just have an account on someone else's server. Um, so kind of the structure of the talk I'm going to give right now is I'm going to be talking about uh, the principles uh, that we can follow as, as hackers uh, in building software for free network services. And I'm going to use examples of Identica and Laconica, the software that I've created, uh, to make a free network service that replaces uh, Twitter. Uh, Twitter being the well-known microblogging I, it's, it's funny being in places where I have to explain this. Uh, Twitter being the well-known microblogging uh, service that is, you know, taking the web by storm, and 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 I'm the little guy trying to stop that tide. So, um, so the first thing I think that we have to do as as, as principal is be pragmatic. We're doing this now in 2009. Uh, we need to really not think about what's going to be the all-singing, all-dancing, perfect network ser services. We need to use existing technologies, use the structure of the Internet as it exists right now. Um, this doesn't mean that we can't think down the road to you know, uh, uh, ubiquitous computing, uh, systems that are universally addressable, um, and uh, real peer-to-peer -peer systems, things like that. Um, but I think that we need to build the kind of systems that work today. And that means that we need to be building around a hub-and-spoke architecture. This is, you know, client-server architecture. We need to build our system <laughs> like this. Um, the fact is, is that most desktop, laptop, personal computers uh, don't have a universal permanent address um, because no one using their computer in here has a universal permanent address uh, right now. Most servers do, which means that they are reachable 24-7 and our client machines, personal machines, are not. Um, and this is not entirely true, this is not perfectly true, but it's mostly true. Um, an example that I use, uh, who here actually uh, uses email? Probably everybody, right? Uh, okay, who has their own email server? Okay, so who has their email SMTP delivered directly to their personal computer? Uh, really? So, so you have a, wow, that, I'm impressed, actually. It's I, I think that very, very few people do that. Most of us use IMAP or POP. We use a hub-and-spoke system. So um, it's, it's, it's pretty unusual that we see um, 
direct SMTP delivery. I think it's possible. I think it's, uh, but uh, I think that we're really going to see more hub-spoke architectures. That's that's the way it's really got to be for now. Um, finally, I think that provide a, a third principle is that when we're providing services, we need to use the web. I know that seems kind of strange. But uh, there are people who are thinking outside that box, and I think we need to kind of uh, focus on it. It works. It's scale. It's rich. It's got a good UI. It's ubiquitous. It's very easy to work with. Very smart people continue to work on making it better. Um, and uh, it also makes the uh, cost of adoption uh, about three to four orders of magnitude easier. Um, people just don't have to install as much software. They have to navigate to a... Uh, web page, so it's considerably easier uh, for people to use. Um, fourth principle that I think uh, is going to be very important is to use a free software license that supports network services. And uh, principally, right now, that's the Afero General Public License (AGPL v3). Um, I I use it for Laconica. Uh, the um, key part of this license is that um, it. Uh, excuse me. A key part of this license is that it requires redistribution of source if people uh, make a service available. And that means that uh, it, it becomes viral um, even for users of services. Um, I think that making the software license easily visible in your software, uh, let it be well known, put it in the footer of every web page if you can. Uh, really kind of forwards the, uh, the, the value of the license and it get, gives people awareness of their rights. Um, as a fifth principle, I think that it's important to build in licensing, uh, data licensing, uh, content licensing to your software um, as, as early as possible. With uh, Laconica, we built in uh, licensing for on a site-wide basis um, from the get-go, from the first launch. Um, I also think it's a good idea to use a free culture license by default. So we use the Creative Commons Attribution License uh, 3.0 as the default. When you install our software, um, unless you fiddle with something, the stuff coming out is going to be CC BY. Um, I, I think that's great. Um, and I think that's a really good idea to do. Um, leaving it up to users as a, you know, all rights reserved is the default, and then they have to choose another license. Uh, means that you know your uh, uh, your adoption of that is going to drop down really far. Um, I think that it's important to let give people choice if they want to change away from a free cult- culture license or if they want to use a different free culture license from the one that you have. Let users or, or service providers pick those, but um, use use a free culture license by default. Um, I think an important part of providing a free network service is a um, to use DNS, uh, use domain names as part of identity, and especially use URLs if you can. Um, Examples here is email addresses, XMPP. Um, These are ways that we use, we distribute systems, we we let people um, be part of a federated network, and we use the domain naming system as the namespacing uh, for that. Trying to build something else or something different or something new that does it differently and have a registry somewhere and blah, blah, blah is a lot of work. It's totally unnecessary. People understand domain names. They will make it work. Um, OpenID Earls is another one here, and uh, blogs is a great example. People really understand that they own the domain for their blog. 
Um, so there's that. Um, speaking of uh, distributed identity, um, I, I think it's important to build in distribution early. This is something that, uh, and, and providing links between instances very early on. If your sys software, these are my, uh, my newly announced principles, if your software has any social aspect, you should build in support for distributed sociality early on. Distributed sociality meaning that I'm on one server, you're on a separate server, we can communicate, we can uh, have a relationship that's expressed on both sides of our, our on both servers. Um, I can operate on objects like images or text or whatever on your server uh, and vice versa. Uh, and that, so if software has a social aspect, it should be distributed, and all software has a social aspect. So all software should support distributed sociality. Um, two important technologies here are OpenID and OAuth. Um, OpenID is an authentication, distributed authentication protocol. OAuth is a distributed authorization protocol. Both are really interesting and really should be the first thing you go to if you're thinking about distributed sociality. Um, on that note, kind of going to be the way that things go through this whole talk is like, as, after I just said that, um, support open standards. I think this is this seems like uh, something very simple uh, that a lot of us understand is, in, is important, but um, it makes it really easy for people to build free software, uh, compatible free software uh, for your software. So if you support an open standard for uh, authentication, if you support an open standard for uh, producing uh, data feeds, if you um, support open standards for lots of things, that means that other people can use those uh, standards and create cool software and become part of an ecosystem. Um, another thing that's important there is um, being semantic. And the semantic web is this kind of, uh, especially on the web, it's, it's kind of gotten this reputation for being this egghead idea that nobody really uses. Um, and uh, being a room full of eggheads, we probably all think that that's okay. Um, but uh, I think semantic, uh, the semantic web is a huge democratizing uh, force on the web. It means that we put a lot of smarts that we already know about already into our data, and that means that our software doesn't have to be very smart. Smart software tends to be proprietary software, patented software. Uh, it tends to be uh, protected by trade secrets. Um, really smart software is why, say, Google is so I important and why um, uh, other kinds of uh, search engines are so good is because they've got really smart software. But that makes it really hard to build a competitor to Google because you have to have the same kind of smart software. Um, on the subject of Google um, is uh, that I think that web software needs to be if you are building web software for free network services, you need to really think about uh, how, how your software looks to search engines. Uh, this, this sounds uh, kind of sleazy. Nobody likes these terms, search engine marketing, SEO. Um, but they are uh, what gets people to see your software, what gets people to see the content that's in your software, and it gets more people to use your software. People will use your software if it will mean that they will get better Google rankings, right? They will they will like that. They will take that. If you hide all your pages behind, you know, weird URLs or uh, you know require some kind of login to get things, or you don't let 
um, search engine uh, uh, robots find your pages and things like that, that's going to mean that uh, people won't want to use your software. So uh, make your software uh, SEM savvy. That makes people like it, makes robots like it. Um, there are some really nice tools that you can build, uh, sitemaps, ping servers. Need to uh, uh, One of the great things about making your uh, websites SEM savvy is that it also means that other third-party tools can uh, can access the the the, uh, the site better too. Um, another thing that uh, another issue that kind of came up uh, for for me very early with Laconica was um, the uh, was was that we were going into places where there weren't existing open standards and weren't existing uh, um, protocols. So. Uh, I had to create a, a, a protocol for distributed microblogging called Open Microblogging 0.1. And it's not very, it's not brilliant. It's very simple. Um, it's, it doesn't cover the whole problem space, um, but it's enough to get things going. It's enough to get people interested and involved um, and kind of establish the framework. And what we've actually done with Open Microblogging is I did an 0.1 version, which was about six months ago when we launched uh, Identica, and uh, we're going to be launching an 0.2 version that has had the input of various other microblogging uh, implementers, which means that we got something out there, and then it was enough to make a stake in the ground and get us moving forward. So uh, I'm really happy about that. Um, probably the, the big achievement there is uh, uh, Google's microblogging engine, uh, Jaiku, is going to be supporting uh, open microblogging in its, its next version. It's just uh, been released as open source, and we're going to be um, having an open federated network uh, of Jaiku and Laconica instances. So uh, that's going to be really huge. Um, but uh, that's, that's, that's there. Um, I think another thing that's, that's important, and this is something that we really fall down on with free software um, for, uh, for web services, um, is uh, supporting a range of usage, right? This means that um, where we usually do find is like download the software, install it on your server, and you'll be fine. That's great. Well, that is only one kind of user, right? There are other kinds of users. Um, there are going to be people who want to have a hosted service. That is, they don't want to download the software, install it on their servers. They want to run it on your server. Um, you should be, we should be uh, reaching those people. Um, and uh, we also should be reaching people who just want an individual account on a single instance of the software. Um, so this is one of the things that we're doing with Identica. We're going to have a hosted service that we're going to launch in April. We also have a major service, which is the Identica service, um, that, that we use for individuals who want individual accounts. And we're just reaching across that spectrum. That's not something that's easy to do with other kinds of web software, and, and that's where I, I think we really need to be doing a, a better job whether it's a nonprofit or a commercial entity that's providing those services, uh, whether, it's a, a, whether it's exactly the uh, development group or if it's an um, associated group. Uh, I think Bright with Drupal is a good example there. Um, but making sure that these options are available, finding someone who, does the, who, who will provide those services, really important. Um, another thing that I think is important for network services is, is building to scale. And uh, when people talk about scaling, they always talk about this like really big end of the scale. 
Um, that end of the scale is, these are like number of users up at the top, and then, you know, kind of what kind of installation we're talking about on the bottom. Um, you know, with like one to 10 users, you can have a small installation of most kinds of software on commodity web hosting. You know, you could just go to GoDaddy and get like their, their $2.95 a month web hosting. Uh, you could go to, as it gets larger, you really have to go to leased servers, virtual servers, that kind of thing. You know, with 100 up to like 10,000 users, you know, which is uh, kind of the medium-sized website. As you get into really large installations, these are on servers that people own, uh, or else they have a very big account for, for these servers. Um, you know, 10 to the 5th, up to 10 to the 8th, which is really, that's about the size of Yahoo. You know, that's the most user, uh, biggest user bases that, that we're talking about. And we have to build software that goes up and down this scale, right? Most of the installations will be out of those small installations. Um, but these big ones are going to probably uh, reach the most users. So, um, and I don't know about the middle there. So each one is important. Uh, concentrating on one part of the scale and ignoring the other parts of the scale, I think is a, a, a really big mistake. And I think that we need to be able to reach everywhere on that scale. Um, one thing that's uh, been very important for me, uh, one of the things that I've really understood as I build free network services is the importance of making big data dumps. Give people all the data. Make a big tarball of everything that you can, all your public data, and make it easily downloadable. I think this is one of the reasons that Wikipedia is, um, it's, it, it seems strange, but it's one of the great things about Wikipedia is that you can get all of Wikipedia. It's, a, it's like a 20 gig download, I think, but it, what? Really? Yeah. All the history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, one half terabyte. Last time I Yeah. So it's huge. It's huge. You know. Images. Images are another two and a half terabytes. Okay. <laughs> um, but also making a dump available to people of their own private data. Um, so these are things that uh, I, I'm working to build into Laconica. They're not actually there yet. But things that have uh, proved very important for other services that I've, that I've seen. Um, feeds are also hugely important. Um, and, and something that we have to be important. So um, feeds should be available to, uh, uh, by default, to uh, downstream users. You should, uh, when we build software, we should really put that into the software as like, you know, put, putting those feeds out there. And we should also um, work hard to uh, find the aggregators who are going to use these feeds uh, for searching, for directories, for archives, all the things that, that would use those data, make sure those, those are going out. When people download and install the software, it should be integrated into a, an ecology of feed consumption already. Um, I think that uh, new free network services um, are, really need to support each other. Um, I think that there are some great free network services out there already, a lot of stuff in the geospace. I love OpenStreetMaps, for example. Uh, Geonames, this is really cool. Uh, geolocation um, uh, free network service. Uh, SearchWikia, I think, is probably uh, getting to be, uh, it, their data is not entirely free, which is kind of not a good idea, but they do have a lot of data that's, that's pretty free. Um, and uh, starting to encourage um, other 
free network services is, is really important. Obviously, Identica would go up here too if I wasn't too humble to put it actually on that list. Um, but we all move faster if we're encouraging each other and we're, we're using each other. We also, you know, someone using Identica who goes, who, who does a search for a location and gets to OpenStreetMaps is now introduced to a new free network service that they didn't know about and that they can participate in. Um, so, uh, and you can also depend on these other free network services to advance, um, to advance uh, 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 your own functionality. Um, but I also think that it's important to engage with existing proprietary services. The fact is, is we're, you know, today in the world of free network services, it's like 1989 in the world of free software, right? We've got like Emacs and, and, and GDB and that's it, you know. We just, we don't have a full software stack uh, for free network services. You cannot live your entire online life with free network services unless you live a very limited uh, online life, right? If you want to like debug and and edit stuff in Emacs. Um, so, and just like with the earliest free software, we have to live in the ecology that exists right now. Um, and if we don't, so you have to install on the proprietary unices that, that exist um, with early free software. Now we need to engage with the proprietary services that exist right now. Um, that's where people are. Um, that's the environment we have right now. And I know that's not always the nicest thing to think about, um, and I know that there are probably people in the room who've never um, had to live in, in a time where you didn't have an entirely free um, free software desktop uh, system, but trust those of us who lived in the year 1999, um, it, was, it, it was a hard world, but we, we made it through, you know, and, and we have to do that right now with non-free uh, network services. Um, so uh, another thing that's uh, really important for free network services is um, making it easy to share source. And it's, it doesn't have to be hard um, to do this. Uh, again, building this directly into the, uh, into the uh, software is important. Uh, building in source links um, have easy ways for, for users of a service to find the source. Um, and also, if there's any plugins, themes, anything like that that's built into the software, uh, make links to those too. Uh, MediaWiki does this really nicely, and it's, it's one of the things that I think is, is really great. Um, one thing that is not easy to do is if the software has actually been modified, but there's no like tarball or anything um, to actually slurp that source out. Uh, that's a little trickier. I don't. I haven't seen anyone do that yet. I'm not sure if that's actually even that necessary. Um, one part about being part of a free networking, um, uh, uh, free software networking excuse me, free network services ecology is uh, providing remote access. So um, uh, a remote APIs simulate third-party development. They mean that your software, your service could be part of matchups where someone could take, you know, Identica, um, Identica microblogging notices and, you know, place them on an OpenStreetMaps map, nifty, uh, things like that. It also allows, um, providing remote APIs means that People can use your software from uh, non-browser environments like uh, desktop clients, laptop clients, uh, mobile clients. Um, we use a uh, remote API for Identica that we borrowed in Toto from uh, from Twitter. So we use the exact same API that they have, which means that we have a lot of support from 
uh, third-party um, developers, which means that more people are using our software or service. Um, additionally, uh, we provide a plug-in system, and I think the most successful web software is really uh, those that provide server-sized plugins. They stimulate contribution. They let people get involved without actually having to touch the core uh, code. Um, they make it um, easy to integrate with other services that may not be appropriate to uh, build into the core code, um, but uh, you can build them into a plugin. They also uh, let people take your software and start uh, integrating it into their existing systems, so it's a great way to give people a reason to install your software. Um, theming and skins, I know this is this, this may seem kind of strange, but I think it's a huge, hugely important thing to get adoption of software for free network services. Uh, people really like good-looking websites, and um, this is a big part of their first sniff of a website is how good it looks, how rounded are the corners, and how you know fancy it, how, how fancy is the color theme, right? And all that kind of stuff. And if it does not look good, they will make a gut response and be out of there in less than a second, like literally less than a second. You know, um, site owners also, people who are providing services, want to provide some kind of branding. Uh, put their mark on the site. They want to make it look like it's theirs. So it's important to support theming skins. Um, using template engines, I think, is kind of overused, but uh, I think definitely uh, CSS can be can make things uh, very very charming and, and well done if you've got very simple uh, HTML output. Um, another thing that I think that we have a huge advantage on um, as uh, people who are developing free network services is uh, being international. Um, uh, the web um, business world, uh, especially in North America, uh, still thinks primarily in English. You know, Actually, it still thinks primarily in terms of the San Francisco Bay Area, um, and occasionally thinks outside there to the rest of California. Um, but you know, uh, the, the idea that, that there are you know, another 7 billion people in the world who, who might want to use some software, uh, it, it kind of stumps a lot of people in Silicon Valley, which is great, because that means we can go in there and provide services to them. Um, we, uh, and those people around the world are looking for ways to participate in web culture, in a social web, and uh, in, in a web culture that cuts them out linguistically, we can provide the tools to integrate them back in. Um, not only that, but there are um, great um, translation resources out there. There are people out there who like speak Telugu or uh, or uh, 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 Bulgarian, and like all they do is look for free software projects to contribute translations to. You know, and they're like advocates for their language, and they want to see those translations happen. And they just come out of the woodwork looking for 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 ways to. Do that, and then all of a sudden, you know, you've got the, you know, we've got the Twitter that speaks Ukrainian, and people who in the Ukraine can either go to Twitter where they have an option to speak in Spanish, or excuse me, Japanese or English, or they can go to Identica where they can actually speak in Ukrainian uh, and, and get a UI in Ukrainian. Um, this is something that in the free software world we have total advantage on, and we need to capitalize on it. Um, I also think using wikis for documentation is really good to uh, capitalize on those uh, translation resources, too. Um, finally, I think this is kind of finally, 
No, I, I might have a couple more. Uh, it's, uh, it's really easy to use network services. It's really easy. People who are used to using browsers um, are uh, really... Uh, can, can use these proprietary non-free services really quickly. Signing up for Facebook is really easy. And uh, we need to make our free network services very, very easy, too. Um, we need to make installation of free software on, on websites very easy, as easy as we can. Uh, we should make setting up an account on an existing server uh, cheap, uh, the, at least, or free if possible, free of charge. Um, and uh, setting up an instance on a hosted service should be really easy, too. Um, these are things that uh, just a matter of like one or two clicks can be the difference between uh, you know ten uh, percent uh, you know of people actually going through and creating an account versus like seventy percent you know um, so this is something that we really have to concentrate on concentrate on that UI and, and concentrate on the UI both for admins and for uh, excuse me both for service providers and for end users um, here is probably my most uh, controversial slide, I think, um, is that I really think that um, uh, using PHP and MySQL for new uh, software for, thanks, uh, new software for free network services is really important. Um, I, I think that uh, PHP, the, the LAMP stack, is really the, the, the POSIX of, uh, C and POSIX uh, of free network services, that um, it's entirely possible to build uh, web software with practically any programming language under the sun. Uh, just like it was pretty much easy to build uh, software for Unix-like systems in pretty much any, any um, uh, programming language under the sun. However, what really succeeded in the free software world was C software. Uh, stuff written in C. And I think that that is what we're going to see happen with, with PHP and MySQL. Actually, what we have seen ha happen with PHP and MySQL, the most successful free software project, uh, free software uh, for, for the web, is PHP and MySQL. And you really need to think hard if you're going to try and build something in another programming language that you really want mass adoption of. Um, so, uh, and, and one of the big reasons for that, I, I, I point out here, is that crappy... 295, you know, commodity hosting system that people can install your software on. It almost always runs PHP and MySQL. It really rarely runs Seaside and Scala and you know all that all, all that really cool stuff. Um, if you don't agree with this, if you think that this is wrong, uh, make a change. You know, there are some really cool platforms coming out um, that uh, that mean that people can get that same kind of hosting and, and, and deploy new free software. Uh, that's written in other uh, programming languages, um, and I think that this is, is something that people need to, to do if they care about programming languages. Um, further ways to further things that if you're interested in seeing a uh, free network service ecology develop and uh, and become the what's available on the world, um, feel free to contact me because I'm really into this stuff. Those, that uh, that's my email address. That's my Identica um, account. Um, but also, we've uh, started this uh, blog and wiki called Autonomous and uh, Autonomo.us, and uh, and that's a good place that we really want to see 
become a nexus point for, for development of these free network services. Um, and I think that's it. That's it. So, uh, thanks. <laughs> I think I have a little more than five minutes, um, and so I'd love to take some questions from the audience. You, sir. Um, I'm just wondering about other um, sort of bottlenecks and choke points that you see in the larger network space. Like, what's these problems? What other kinds of major problems need to be addressed before everything? <laughs> um, so I think that we have a lot. I, I, I actually have a. Uh, I started a wish list on autonomous, and it's it's, it's kind of blossomed. Uh, for where, what kind of software that we want to see uh, developed. Things like bookmark sharing, uh, uh, photo sharing, um, general purpose social networking uh, a la Facebook, um, uh, general purpose uh, news uh, systems a la Dig. Um, basically, just go to like, you know, if you go to like any list of the Hot 100 websites, you know, just like go down there and say like, okay, let's replace that. Let's get rid of that. Okay, let's replace that. You know, uh, there is a lot of web infrastructure, a lot of web services that we need to start challenging uh, with uh, free software alternatives. Um, and and those, those, those are something that I really think are, are, are big uh a quick follow-up. Yeah. Quick follow-up to that is, um, I'm building some of these. That's why I'm asking. Good. Um, do that. <laughs> if, if, if I'm if I do this, I'm pl- not planning to use PHP actually, and and I'm just wondering, why do you think that's true? Is is it because of the server architecture and the hosting services that is going to screw me? Because I'm planning to be radically distributed and peer-to-peer anyway. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, if so. Um, so, uh, I I think it's primarily the hosting. Um, I think the fact that people can get hosting with PHP and MySQL uh, very cheaply, very easily, uh, means that the adoption of PHP and MySQL uh, uh, web software is just, you know, uh, probably like an order of magnitude to a couple order of magnitudes compared to other stuff. You know, WordPress versus Blossom, you know, and it's just like a hundred times more. So if what you want to do is create something that um, is a distributed, worldwide uh, challenger to an existing uh, network service, then you need to not go for the niche uh, audience. You need to go for the mass audience. And the mass audience is PHP and MySQL. Yeah, another question. Um, one thing that I've noticed... Yeah, I'll, 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 yeah, no, it's you. So go. All right. One thing I've noticed lately is that a lot of people who are web designers, really interested in designing the good, easy to use web apps like you're talking about, are really attracted to the Ruby on Rails community and technology platform. So that's you know when you talk about using a capture and a PHP and saying everybody can standardize on that. Well, a lot of them are on Mongrel and Ruby. And like that. Yeah. Should we be as a as a movement as a group reaching out to them and trying to Promote um, that they keep their apps free software. They can use the PPL and so on. Yeah. A lot of the time, we don't see a lot of free software foundation technical at those conferences. Yeah. So, all right. So, I think 
You know, when you talk to people who make web services, they'll be like, God, we love open source software. It's, it's awesome. You know, we love building our proprietary services on top of this open source software. You know, it's, it's so great. Uh, and, and that's what I think has happened a lot with Ruby and Ruby on Rails. It's a great platform. The people who work on that core stuff are, are, are great. I cannot name a popular piece of uh, free software uh, that, that is, is based on Ruby on Rails. Uh, can somebody else... I, Anybody? I mean, I can't. I can't think of one. Like, I can't think of a Drupal that's written in Ruby on Rails. That community is not generating... What's that? There we go. Or wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Redmine. The good one. Okay, cool. Um, Do you think that's cultural, that, that Ruby has this problem, and they just haven't gotten around to it? Because I was there in 2004. It seems to be very tempest Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know why that's happening. How much is it? How much is it? The deployment? How much is it? The stuff that is getting written is not building the uh, contributor communities that are necessary to, to have a uh, a healthy free software um, uh, community. I, I'm not sure. I, I have nothing. You know, I, I'm definitely not uh, a, a PHP advocate or bigot. I just happen to think that. Um, it, it's the easiest uh, platform to build on right now. And if, if, if someone thinks that they can get, if someone writes a really great, you know, Facebook replacement in Ruby on Rails, awesome, you know, great. Um, and, and if they don't, you know, then, then we need to think of something else. Yeah, Bradley. Um, I don't fight with my wife often, but I have fight with my wife after my scout team went over Identica. Oh, really? Yeah, so it's your fault. The argument she was making was that Twitter, Twitter has won. Uh, and she kind of had a point, which is why we argued. Um, yeah. And it inspired me to start boycotting Twitter, because I had been pushing my identity statements through to Twitter. And what she was arguing made me realize is I'm part of the Twitter critical mass if I do that. Yeah. So to, to what extent do you think we need to refuse to cooperate? Because you're cooperating with Twitter, they're not cooperating with you. Yeah. So so to what extent do you think we have to just refuse to cooperate? That's why I, I, I do what I did, turn off the push through because they won't give us access to the open microphone. Yeah, I think it's a really I think it's a really interesting question. I, I'm not sure. So uh, when people tell me this and, and, and tell me in, in terms of like this is why I should quit working on Laconica and Identica because Twitter has won. Thank you. I think that uh, it, it's uh, with Twitter in particular. I, I think that that's totally premature. Twitter has five million users. Uh, there are 1.4 billion. People on the internet today. There are another one billion people who have uh, mobile phone access, which is one of the key uses of of, of microblogging. Um, and, and so that five million people is five million influential people. Um, it's a lot of you know uh, web people, uh, an awful lot of people in the San Francisco Bay Area. Once again, funny how that happens. Um, it, but uh, it's a uh, it's not game over yet, you know. It's not game over any more than like blogging was over in 2000 when 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 Blogger. dot com uh, launched. Open software stack on mobile phones. How many should be? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you use the cheap phone maybe, but in the city, there's not a lot of. Oh, that other billion people? Yeah. Yeah, that billion people that don't have web access. <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> That's, 
Oh, ones that do have a have web access but only on their phones. Well, or data access, which is even worse, right? Because then it's completely free traffic by the companies like Nokia and Verizon. Um, a lot of phones that kind of get to the internet. Right. right. They don't so, really get to the internet. Yeah. So should we have free phones? Yes. We should have free software phones that are freely that can freely connect to a free internet. That's absolutely the case. Um, that uh, and that is going to be great for free network services too. Um, but uh, can we have free network services without having those free phones, or or can we work in tandem on that? Do we have to wait for free phones before we can have free network services? I don't feel like we have to wait. I think we have to be working on this problem right now. Um, back to your question: Should we um, should we boycott Twitter? Should we boycott Facebook? Should we boycott um, uh, Google? Um, <laughs> sorry, dude. <laughs> um, uh, I, I I think that. Um, I think that we're, it's, a, it's a hard time to do that. I think it's a hard time to ask people to do that. Um, I, I don't think that um, saying that... Uh, I, I think it's a good time to be raising the issues, you know, and saying there's a... Your entire sociality, the, the, the events that you go to, your friendships, the people you connect to, your mom, your, your high school buddies, right? All that information is owned by a proprietary company in Palo Alto, California, and they can deny you access to it at, uh, in a second. And you need to think about that, and you need to think about what your level of control is and what's really important. Um, and if you don't have that level of control, um, you need to get a little bit scared. And I think people did get a little bit scared when, like, Facebook changed their EULA, um, and Facebook had to back down, which was great. Um, I think that if, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, but uh, I, I think that um, activating people in that way is something that's going to be a little bit more gradual. Um, I just don't feel like uh, we're in a place. I think we can encourage people to use free network services. I think that telling people you cannot. Yeah, time to go. Uh, I think it might not be time to say don't use non-free network services 100%. Anyways, thanks, everybody. Uh. Uh, so we have a break now uh, for 15 minutes, and we have some snacks outside. There is a key signing. Uh, that's going to, GPG key signing will be by the registration table. Basically, on the weekend, they actually said I was going to do a bunch of talk on reverse engineering, but unless people really want to see lots of boring color-coded hex dumps, I was really going to do a talk on Ganache itself and the project. No, I'm just talking, oh, uh, test one. I'll just try and talk really, really loud, I guess. Um, but anyway, yeah, my reverse engineering talk is unfortunately like an entire afternoon's tutorial, and I thought I'd spare you guys the boredom of reading hex dumps. Although it is kind of fun when you get really into it. So, so anyway, yeah, I'm going to talk about uh, Ganache, the GNU Flash Player, which, funny enough, somebody once did a vote and said we have the worst name of a GNU project they had ever heard of. <laughs> I don't know why, but the rest of us kind of like it. Um, I work for Open Media Now, which uh, is a nonprofit I founded several years ago, and uh, we're actually a 501c6 sort of... Uh, 
trade organization um, based in Colorado, a legal nonprofit. We have a team spread out, I think at last count, over about nine or ten different countries working on a lot of our software. And um, I used to say we raised funds for open media-related projects, but the last three months it's been more like we attempt to raise funds. Um, I don't know if anybody here is running a nonprofit, but it's a really bad economy for uh, sponsorships for free software projects. And um, we're about to announce a big legal project working with uh, patents around uh, multimedia codecs and stuff that I'll talk about in a little bit as I get into it. Um, and anybody can ask questions at any time because this isn't so much as a talk as a bunch of slides, and um, you can interrupt me and distract me all you want. So can we donate to Open Media now? Yes. Like give you money? Yes. All right. <laughs> We also take free beer, massages, and pizza. <laughs> I, was, I was in New York about three days ago and saw something called FHTML, which translates a sort of higher level HTML directly into Flash. I'm wondering if you know those guys because it might be interesting to have their stuff translated to you instead. No, but since we interpret Flash, you know, Swash, you know, Swift format, we don't care because when we see it, it's already down to the Swift end. Okay. So. Um, and I'll talk more about Codex later. So right now, for the last uh, four and a half years, we've been sort of uh, funding and sponsoring several projects. Um, kind of one of our goals in Open Media... Well, who cares anyway? Um, one of the goals in, in Open Media now is that we believe really strongly in patent-free multimedia codecs. And then the big problem is that there's not really a complete infrastructure for using things like Vorbis. So if you wanted to create a video in Theora, edit it and put it on your website... You can kind of do it now if you're a geek, but most normal people, it's, it's pretty daunting. And so one of our goals was to develop the sort of you know, creation end, server side, and client side for multimedia, you know, web. I'm not going to use the 2.0 thing because it makes me sick. But, um, so we work a lot on Ganache, which is our client side for displaying Flash, of course, you know, Adobe plugin compatible. Um, I just two weeks ago released Signal, which is an Adobe compatible media server that also speaks Flash and a couple of other protocols. And, um, and Ming, which is a sort of a Flash compiler type of creation environment that, as of last week, somebody's putting a GUI on. So we're working now on graphical IDEs for Flash programmers, which should be fun, primarily oriented, oriented towards educational games. Um, I figured I'd throw this one up. Everybody goes, how do you wind up working on you know, free software projects sometimes? I mean, I remember when I first started on GCC, I needed a free compiler and couldn't afford to pay some $9,000 a seat. So Ganache's first platform, believe it or not, was my stereo. Um, <laughs> one day I got a phone call from an old friend of mine, and, uh, John Gilmore, and he was, had some company that wanted to do a Flash-based user interface. Um, at the time, I hadn't quite realized this five years ago, but since now, it turns out that the main use of Ganache is not in a web browser. It's actually a user interface for set-tops and embedded devices that runs in a raw frame buffer without X11 that happens to know how to do video. So, so anyway, um, I spent about six months on this originally. I looked around um, for existing projects. You know, the nice thing about the sort of free software world is that a lot of times we all build on the work of others. And so sometimes when we're asked to start a new project and don't have a whole lot of time, you really need to depend and build on the work of others. So I found this one project that was the beginning of a Flash player, talked to the developer. He had kind of abandoned it and um, became a pretty active developer on it, ported it, and bang, there was the user interface for my stereo system. Um, this is a nice box. They make these stereos for high-end houses and stuff. This particular box has got a 600-gigabyte hard drive with about 2,500 Grateful Dead bootlegs, I think, on it. <laughs> it's the Grateful Dead box. <laughs> but, um, but it's amazing when people get started. And when I did this, I didn't really think about it, and I'll get into it more. But I did a project and wrote a little Flash player and then forgot about it and then 
a while later, it kind of came back to me. <laughs> huh? Is it? Oh, good. Now I can talk a little quieter. Um, so basically, some people say, like, why Flash? I mean, one of the problems is that myself and actually nobody on the Ganache team, none of us had ever installed the Adobe plugin. So, because I just don't like binary blobs, really. So, one of the funny things we had is like, you know, why Flash? Well, you know, in the earlier days of the internet, nobody really cared. And even up until like the early parts of, you know, 2000s and stuff, you could pretty much navigate the web pretty decently without like a Flash plugin. But what we started to see was a lot of problems. Um, people were starting to use Flash for m- menus. Not instead of image maps, people were using Flash in a lot of ways. It wasn't like video or animation. I mean, Flash is a you know graphics programming language. And so what was happening was that basic functionality on some sites, login pages, menus, all that kind of stuff, were becoming so Flash-based that I'd go to a website and it'd be a big gray box, you know. Um, and that was kind of getting irritating. Then it started happening more and more and more and more. Then this crazy thing called YouTube came out, and oh my God, suddenly Flash has been adopted, you know, worldwide for for streaming video applications. Um, Maybe good, because Silverlight, I hear, sucks. And I think for Silverlight, you have to download binary blob codecs from Microsoft yeah. still, um, So, which is good. And that's one case I hope that us and Adobe survive the onslaught of Microsoft there. Um, and then the other thing was that Flash is also heavily used for educational applications and gaming, which I never really thought of until I got involved with the OLPC project. Um, so in some ways, people go, well, you know, what do we care about Flash? I mean, you know, it's a big deal. It's like, you know, graphics and mostly ads. Like, when I first got Ganache running as a web browser plugin, I realized that the internet had been taken over by, you know, basically real estate agents who all use, like, Flash 5 that runs in anything, you know, and it's like the whole sides of your browser are blinking. I'm like, oh, that was a mistake. Maybe I should kill this project now. Um, <laughs> but, but part of the problem was that as time went on, when you don't have a Flash plugin, you start to become in a, an inability to navigate the internet. Um, I mean, a lot of us that aren't in the binary blobs start finding that we're left out, you know. And it was kind of a drag to sort of, you know, this web thing's pretty cool. You know, sure beats Usenet in the old days. And suddenly it was becoming harder and harder to deal with the internet. So that was kind of an interesting. Um, I know at one point the FSF had a campaign on don't use Flash. Didn't work too good, obviously. I mean, everything's worth it. I'm a big believer in the futile gesture, but um, we just did not get people to stop adopting Flash. And so at that point, you know, you kind of need your own Flash player. Um, I don't know if anybody here is into, uh, you know, 64-bit systems, but yeah, me too. The Adobe player, I think they just got 64-bit released in alpha a couple, like a month or so ago, finally. Um, they probably would have been reading the Ganache code. Um, and the other, huh? Yeah, I, I found... Um, and so that's the other problem. The other thing is their Linux support in the Adobe Player pretty much sucks from what everybody tells me. Not being actually allowed to run it, I can't tell you. But everybody else tells me that it's, it's bad, it crashes, it hangs Firefox, it does all this crazy stuff. I can see why I haven't worked on Flash for all these years. Um, and then the other problem, too, is it really, I mean, Adobe Flash really only runs on little Indian 32-bit Intel machines, basically, which, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I actually work on a lot of other weird machines, everything from Itaniums and MIPS and PowerPCs and ARMs. And, and I always thought one of the beauties of free software is you can make it run on anything if you just got a little bit of time and motivation. Um, and so basically, it's like, you know, what can we do about this problem? So, you know, basically, we just want to talk about sort of network services. Don't use Flash on your websites. And this is from a guy who writes a Flash player. Um, we should really not 
be looking for more ways to pervert our websites with Flash because it's just going to eat your CPU. And when I go to websites and their front page is just a gigantic Flash movie at you know 800 by 600, I'll go to another website. Forget that one. Um, another thing is we encourage people that do have to you know that are actually sort of on the provider end of the business. If you're working on a website that's got some Flash content. Test it with Ganache. The guys at Dailymotion test with Ganache all the time, and so everything they do works with Ganache. Same thing for YouTube. We work with the YouTube guys, and so you know, sites that work with us work a lot better for everybody. I would say another thing is if you encounter a business website that you go to that is flash heavy, send a letter to the company or send them an email saying, gee, I would really love to do business with you, but your website is too flash heavy. I want plain text or I want regular graphics. Yeah that work with anything, not something that requires another proprietary plugin. It's funny. Yeah. We had one of our developers fixed a bunch of bugs in Ganache a couple years ago merely because his bank adopted Flash-based banking software. <laughs> can, you use, can you use some bizarre trick, I'm just going to make this up, but a bizarre trick like switching languages to say on your browser, I don't want Flash, and at least people could provide on their site two ways of doing site mapping. I guess, but I'm not a website guy, so. Speaking out loud, that might also help in the meantime with all the people who have binary blob trouble. There may be a way of specifying, I'm not planning to execute Flash. Please give me your alternate version. Yeah, and, and I really like the people that say skip this or alternate menus. Site maps are great. I like a lot of that stuff, but not all website maintainers and designers actually pay attention to even their user base, much less normal people. Um, and then our solution, of course, to this whole problem was, you know, sometimes when you get really, really frustrated and pissed off, the best thing is to write code. A lot of code. Fast. <laughs> well, we didn't go that fast. So, um, so anyway, Ganache is a funny little project. As I said, we started in 2004 for a, a you know, user interface for a stereo system. And then I forgot about it. You know, I was a consulting at the time. It was a project, big deal. You know, did that project, did another one. Um, one day, funny enough, when I was packing to go down to Katrina to do relief work for Katrina, I got this phone call from John Gilmore, and he goes, you know, didn't you write a Flash player last year? And I'm like, well, yeah, big deal. And he goes, we need a free Flash plug-in. Here's why. And I got the whole brain dump from John, you know, and I'm like, Interesting. I'll let you know whenever I get back. So five months later, I got back and basically called up John and said, yeah, I'm broke. I'll go do that. <laughs> and he made a very small donation, but it's okay. You know, fed the kids, and that was cool. Um, and so I started, that's basically when we started the Ganache project. And because I had based it on another older open source project, I talked to the maintainer. And he had the classic example. He goes, please fork my project which I think is slightly unusual. He goes, I don't want to do bug reports. I got a nice job that I like. Just, just change the name and do something else. And so I'm like, oh, my God, John. He said, this is great, but we need a name. John's like, oh, call it Ganache. I'm like, great, I hate picking project names. Um, then basically um, I got launched into trying, I mean, I'm a compiler debugger guy. So then I got launched into trying to reverse engineer how you do plugins for Firefox. Boy, that was really fun for a guy without a graphics background. Um, but eventually, in beating through massive amounts of incredibly out-of-date documentation, reading source code is wonderful, actually, um, I actually got Ganache running as a Firefox plugin in 2006, which was pretty cool, I thought, because I wasn't sure I was actually going to get it to work at one point. And we got it all working, and that was pretty neat. Oh, boy, big mistake. We got lots of attention. Lots of attention means lots of bug reports. Um, but bug reports are all good, so it doesn't matter. Um, so, so that was pretty cool. So at that point, I suddenly had a Flash 
plug into my browser to watch all the ads. That was great, sort of. <laughs> um, so then we decided, you know, we hadn't really done enough by polluting the Firefox world with making all the Flash ads actually work in their browser. So then we decided to screw up Conqueror by giving it Flash plugin support as well. So, um, so now this way, KDE and GNOME desktop people can have the full beauty of the Internet advertising at, at full force. But this is why we all run Adblock, right? <laughs> So, um, so anyway, so we got that running as a sort of K-Parts type plugin. So you can kind of plug in Ganache's widgets and Gnome and KDE and all this weird perverted gunk. Um, then we got YouTube working. Um, there's, a, I think, a letter. I think as Peter put it out three years ago. A couple years ago about, you know, oh, Ganesh needs new help to get YouTube working. We got it working two weeks later. But, um, but, and that was actually really interesting because I can't tell you how many bug reports I get that YouTube doesn't work all because we can't ship a proprietary codec. Um, but it's pretty funny because when we got YouTube working in Ganesh, instantly we became Ganesh, the YouTube player. Nobody even talks about Flash, Swift, animations, educational software. Flash doesn't seem to exist for most people, but YouTube. It's amazing. And I never actually been to YouTube. I don't even own a television. I went to YouTube. I'm like, oh my god, what an amazing thing! I spent so much time watching crappy YouTube videos. It's harder than debugging <laughs> at hex dumps. I tell you. Um, so since basically we got the project started, um, we became a high priority project at the FSF. It was kind of a pseudo empty slot. They had GPL Flash up there, but when I announced Ganache, all the GPL Flash people quit their project and joined the Ganache team, and actually is still the Ganache team. <laughs> and so we just sort of switched high-priority Flash projects because we had a lot... Well, I had written a better VM than they had, so it worked out that way. Um, one of the nice things, as I'll mention it, being a talk on high-priority projects is it really does help being on the project list. It's not like you're going to make you a zillionaire or whatever, but a lot of developers are motivated to do what they think is good for the community, and they're willing to let the FSF say, hey, we think you should go do this. It's good for the community. So it's been really helpful to have that support because having enough developers when you're doing a gigantic project <laughs> like a Flash player, it's a lot of work. And so I hate to say it, a lot of bodies is actually useful. We don't have a lot of bodies, but um, we have more than me, which is really nice. I've started a few other GPL projects and gotten zero developers and never had posts on the email list. So it's, it's kind of nice to be on a project that's actually got a pretty active, you know, kind of vibrant community and stuff. Um, we're now, I think, on over, we're running on something like 40 or 50 different computer systems now. Almost every GNU Linux and BSD distribution on the planet ships Ganache. So does OpenSolaris, Haiku, Syllable. OS2 and a bunch of other weird machines. Um, and then I created Open Media Now, mostly so people could give us money, because it turns out there's this interesting concept when you actually can help pay your developer something, they work all the time. And their wives don't scream at them because they're actually helping pay the bills. And some, I'm a big believer that trying to help fund free software projects is a really good thing. So, Not like, how, so how many of those distributions that are distributing Ganache are distributing the number of codecs? None of them. Zero. <laughs> Big problem. I get probably several hundred bug reports every week that YouTube doesn't work, all because they haven't loaded a single codec package called FFmpeg. Drives me crazy, but that's life. But I'll, I'll get into that more, too. Um, so anyway, we've created Open Media Now, which, as I said, was a nonprofit, because at one point we had no way to actually take money or equipment from everybody. And people that really want to help you but happen to have these things called businesses around them have to be able to write not necessarily write stuff off. They have to say, we mailed it to these guys, and here's their website and their P.O. box. So we created our own nonprofit, mostly just because, I don't know, we just decided to create our own nonprofit as opposed to running it under somebody else's banner and stuff. And it's been interesting running a nonprofit, but, you know, whatever. Um, and we've basically then been putting a lot of our time into continuing to uh, reverse engineer the Adobe technology. And 
I don't think I can use a protocol analysis term for a binary file format, though. But So I use reverse engineering, and we don't disassemble executables, because that's tacky and cheating anyway, no fun. Um, <laughs> that's what I told it. The first time I ever went up to Adobe, they asked me all these weird questions about, you know, Ganache, and they thought I was basically, you know, taking their player apart. And I'm like, why would I want to re-implement your crappy Flash player code? <laughs> I said, a VM's a VM. We can do a better job. We're free software, you know. We're free to do what we want, actually. Um, so, so one of the funny things about Ganache is, as I said, a lot, most of the Ganache usage actually isn't really so much as a web browser plugin, which is good, because I'd be buried in 10,000 YouTube bugs every day. And I'm actually a long-time embedded systems programmer. Um, I've been doing embedded systems work pretty much since the 70s, and I like small devices, and I worked at Cygnus Support for most of that whole run, and so I spent a lot of time playing with, like, weird, funky hardware. So I like that stuff. It's kind of fun for me. So anyway... I got really into a crazy urge a few years ago of putting Ganache to anything that would show up in my house. So this was a small collection of some of the crazy stuff I put Ganache to in a couple-of-week period. Um, DxO doesn't count in the middle, but there's uh, two Shrub Zaruses in there, uh, Nokia phone, uh, Intel Classmate, <coughs> Pepper Pad. I don't know. It was just kind of fun. Um, OpenMoco ports, Nokia 770 at the time, Internet tablet, um, PlayStation 3 port because we run on power. We run 64-bit on power PCs in big Indian mode. <laughs> Um, and that was actually pretty fun because I like playing with hardware. And so, uh, and this has actually been most of the people using Ganache. We have a bunch of companies in Hong Kong and Taiwan that ship Ganache as their main media player. There's a whole lot of people in sort of in our market space. This is more like what we work on, not the web browser, thank God, because the Web 2.0 is boring. Um, so I was still using my reverse engineering. This will probably be my only reverse engineering slide unless people want me to launch into my other talk later. Um, Basically, if you're going to really reverse engineer something, don't do it FFmpeg. Do it legally so other people can actually redistribute it, or it's not really worth the effort. I'm a big believer in doing it legally. Talk to the lawyers first. It's a good idea. You know, once you're in trouble, it's like getting a speeding ticket. You know, it's like you can't do much about it. So it's just better to, to avoid trouble by being really careful. And I think I've memorized every legal reverse engineering clause in the DMCA, thanks to the EFF and stuff. Um, if you happen to see software with a really crazy EULA, the Flash license had a clause that forbid reverse engineering Flash players if you installed their plugin. If you read their ActionScript specifications or the Adobe documentation manuals, you are forbidden from working on Flash players. Um, they recently removed this uh, requirement after four years of me bugging them about it, which is pretty amazing. But, um, but yeah, if you have a really weird EULA and it has clauses in it you don't like, don't sign it, don't use the software. Um, the other big key thing is you have to use publicly available documentation. Um, in the Flash world, this was actually pretty easy because a lot of the documentation was based on ECMA 262, same as JavaScript. I mean, Adobe uses the Mozilla JavaScript engine for a long time. That's why they rewrote it and gave it back and called it Tamron. Um, and so we basically used ECMA 262 for our class library specifications. And then our volunteer community would run test cases with the Adobe player, tell us how it was supposed to work, and we would just go back and forth until we had it exactly right. And in the beginning, it was very slow that way, but over time, we got to know it all so well that we hadn't even barely, we don't barely even look at documentation anymore. And then last year, after several years of us lobbying Adobe, they released all their specifications and dropped their licensing clause. So I'll give them a little bit of credit there, luckily. Um, the other thing is, if you're actually going to use proprietary software, you have to legally obtain it. So, for instance, some of my reverse engineering um, on like network protocols, I've had to sniff the network connection. 
But hey, I've got older kids who run Adobe Flash, so they can like pass their college tests. I can't make my kids flunk out of college, you know. So, um, so Gannett says, "Oh, hmm, my son's visiting. Gee, I can have him like go to these five URLs where I sniff the network connection and get all the data that I need." You gotta love having kids. Um, but the whole point is, is that. <laughs> Yeah, I should tell you another. When my kids first went to college, they're just like, "Dad, you forgot to tell us about this Windows thing." Everybody thinks we're weird. <laughs> <laughs> Growing up in a house full of uh, Unix machines. Um, but anyway, so yeah, if you're gonna reverse engineer proprietary software, get it legally. I'm like, I can't emphasize it. When you do these things legally, you can keep doing it. If you don't do it legally, people make you stop. Making you stop is also called court, jail, and big fines, um, none of which is good. Um, and then the final part is what's really funny is last week, the, head, um, the top manager at Adobe actually announced for the first time publicly ever, I've been bugging him about this for a long time, that Ganache is a legal reimplementation of, of open specifications. I was blown away because now I'm not so worried about being sued anymore. Um, and Silverlight's been very useful for getting Adobe to be friendly. <laughs> um, so, Ganache has got a whole bunch of different features that aren't quite exactly like some of the Adobe ones. Um, one of the big fun things about Ganache is, since it was originally written as a user interface, it runs standalone. That's how it was designed. You know, the plugin was kind of an afterthought. And so, most of the people using Ganache love the fact that they can run it from the command line, run custom Flash movies that's <laughs> like their advertising sign or whatever else it is. And so an ability to run standalone, unlike Adobe, has been very, very useful to us. And um, we plug into pretty much any Mozilla-derived browser from Firefox to 105 up to Firefox 3.1. Um, Conqueror in KDE 3 and 4. Embedded Conqueror, which was a pain. Um, bunches of other weird browsers. It seems like every browser these days is actually implementing NPAPI, even WebKit is. So we've been actually supporting pretty much every browser around. And lately, we've fixed the support so that some of the weird browsers work pretty good. Um, not weird, I mean, but some of the, the Ice Cat, Ice Weasels, all the weird little variations install things subtly differently. So we've been putting a lot of work into making sure Ganache installs and works with you know, all the other browsers. Um, streaming video. You know, Ganache supports streaming video. Big deal, YouTube. But it's really popular, it turns out. Um, another big thing about Ganache that Adobe never did is we actually have um, multiple renderers. We support OpenGL, which if you're on a small cell phone platform, they often have OpenGL along with like a 400 megahertz processor. And so you actually need to be able to kind of delegate a lot of your processing to the graphics processor just so that your little 400 megahertz chip can do full software, you know, what else it's doing. I mean, it's hard working on slow hardware, so having OpenGL backends is very useful. Um, we also support a thing called Antigrain, AGG, although I think that's going to go away and be replaced by another vector library soon because AGG is kind of, the guy got a commercial job and it's kind of stopped being maintained. And we use that as sort of a 100% pure software rendering solution for people that don't have uh, OpenGL support. And we support Cairo, but it's really, really slow. So someday Cairo will catch up and maybe we'll use it more, but right now it's not very good. Um, we do a lot of work with network security. When I first got Ganesh, with a working network connection, I discovered that most Flash movies install three, four, five, six other Flash movies from other websites, and because it's being loaded by the Flash player, you never see it. You know, your, your, your monitor light goes on. Wow, there's network traffic, you know. So when I got networks working, I was blown away. Um, it turns out that Adobe has hacks in their SDK where every time you play the Flash movie, it'll register a hit on somebody's website in their access log so you can count how many times your movie was played. 
lots of little weird stuff like that. This got me really worried. So one of the nice things we've done in Ganache is we pay a lot more attention to security. Um, the Adobe Flash Player is full of security bugs. It's not this talk, but it's... I wouldn't use it for banking software. It would scare the crap out of me. <laughs> but anyway, other people do. So we put a lot of attention with, with privacy, whitelists and blacklists. You can, if you don't have you know, ad block or flash block installed, you can do a blacklist of sites you don't like and you never load flash content from them. It's a great way to get rid of the, the trackers watching you. you know. Um, we print out every network connection so you can see what's going on. We save everything that's loaded to disk as an option if you want so you can see what was going on. We're pretty crazy about it. But, but security is really, really important. And I think the free software community pays more attention to security and, and privacy of individuals than any of these big uh, commercial companies. Um, and it's important. Um, we're also extensible. Um, Adobe Flash has these big class libraries, which are cool, but if you want to do anything outside the class library, you then have to write everything in, you know, action script and bytecode interpreted. So um, Ganache actually supports writing wrappers for any uh, development library on your, your system. So much like Perl and Python and stuff, write thin wrappers for every development library on your GNU Linux platform, Ganache does that too. So we have things like direct MySQL support, um, direct raw network support, um, support for remote control devices. So when you're using your set-top box, you can grab a remote control and it just works in Ganache like a mouse. And so we pretty much write wrappers for everything. Dbus, I wrote wrappers once for GTK, so I could program GTK in ActionScript because I don't have the Adobe SDK. Um, it's kind of fun. You can actually, we turn ActionScript into a, a kind of a general-purpose scripting language. It's got really good graphics support, which is kind of neat. Um, in addition to that, then, we also support a thing called XML messaging, which Adobe's had for a while. For instance, the stereo that I used, the Flash movie, because Flash runs in a sandbox, you click you know, play, it can't really do anything. It can't talk to the hardware, although Ganache can, but the Adobe player can't. So what you do is now you click a button, it sends an XML message, things happen. So the ability to have an XML-based networking scheme lets you do pretty nice, complicated protocols and all sorts of other kind of fancy stuff. Um, and finally, we're really big fans of patent-free codecs. Um, if you go to Internet Archive and you have Ganache, you'll get Fiora instead of MPEG, stuff like that. Um, we're big fans of making the whole sort of patent-free codec infrastructure actually work. Um, so this is another tough one. Compatibility of Ganache, it changes daily, but not heavily. So I'll, I'll make the attempt here. Um, <coughs> primarily, we are originally a Flash 7 project, um, but Flash 7 is kind of old now. So we actually last year released the original beginning of uh, Flash 9 support, which is good because YouTube and everybody else is now using Adobe Flash support and things like that. So we have Flash 9 support, good, but we don't have all the class libraries. So that's kind of our, our next part is to work on that. Um, we've got about 80% of the, the up, to actual, up to Flash 9 libraries implemented, but with Flash 9, they, they created a Flash library, you know, five times the size. It's crazy. Um, but luckily, ActionScript 3 is like ActionScript 2. They've completely changed all the binary bindings and the interfaces and gunk. But we figured all that out and got it working in an experimental branch. And the next Ganache release will have pretty good Flash 9 support, we believe. Actually, i got 10 minutes, so I'll start going faster. We're really portable. We're really into portability, so I won't bother to read this whole slide. But we run on a lot of different stuff. That's half the fun, because free software should run anywhere you need it to. It's, and we even run on that Windows thing. Um, a lot of weird operating systems I never heard of. Um, we're really into performance, because we believe that's one spot where Adobe has completely blown it. Um, so we support both the X-Video extension for scaling if your hardware supports it, like on the OLPC. Um, so we can do like full 19 by 1200 full screen resolution, about 10, 12% CPU load. Let's see Adobe do that. 
Um, we use the MIT shared memory extension, so your average flash rendering and stuff typically is uh, a good 10, 15, 20% lower than the Adobe player on the same hardware. I don't run Adobe, so I can't give you numbers other than the ones people give me. Um, and we're doing a lot of work now with variations on supporting hardware-based audio and video decoding, mostly for the sort of embedded market. Um, so basically, Ganesh is written in C++. I think we're one of the few GNU projects that is actually in C++ base. Um, the original project I worked on was written in C++, so I didn't really decide. I just used it. But I like C++, so who cares? Um, we use Boost instead of Glib for threads and portable data types, a lot of that stuff. Um, we use both GStreamer or FFmpeg. Um, we're big on internal APIs, so we support a lot of weird stuff. Um, and FFmpeg's got better performance, but most of the distributions build it with GStreamer support. Um, we use libcurl for networking, although I'm about to replace that. And um, we support GNOME and KDE pretty much natively. Um, the extensions and stuff, like I said, we can write extensions for pretty much any development library on your computer. It makes Flash an actual decent programming language with lots of eye candy and moving objects and stuff. Um, I'll throw this one into. So we're big into testing. Um, among other things, I was the author of Deja GNU, the GNU regression testing format. Um, so I'm really big into regression testing like a maniac. We have something like 35,000 test cases. We're huge believers um, in test cases. Um, we're big into BuildBot and things like that. We use a lot of other tools because there's several now sort of free Flash compilers around. We actually run our test suites through every other Flash compiler we can find. We maintain Ming, but we use MTask and Hacks and SwiftMill. And, um, and SwiftTools two weeks ago released an ActionScript 3 compiler, which is going to be very, very useful to us. You talk about projects helping each other. They saw we need an ActionScript 3 compiler, and they cranked it out in a month. It was wonderful. Um, we have a pretty good-sized build farm and stuff because we like to run a lot of machines, so you've got to do it all the time. Um, I'll put in a little blurb for BuildBot, another GPL project. If you've got a bunch of different machines you're supporting and a lot of different configurations, um, BuildBot basically builds you know, one config, two hours later builds a different configuration and just works its way through all the computations until it's done and gives you cute little charts that you can check. I really like BuildBot, although it's a little flaky sometimes, but mostly works good. Um, so our current focuses right now are improving our Flash 9 library um, and support. We're doing a lot of work on that. Um, we've reverse engineered the, the RTMP network protocols Adobe uses and the BBC iPlayer uses, and it's kind of what all the proprietary companies like to use. We now have an implementation, both client and server side, that's about to get released. Um, we're more into better performance, like as I said, like hardware video de acceleration decoding. And we're actually now working on... Um, flash-based video conferencing applications on top of Ganache and our media server. Um, I'll briefly mention this. I just released an alpha of Signal like two weeks ago. And Signal is a media server that happens to be a clone of the Adobe media server, which means it speaks Flash. Um, most of the video conferencing works by actually sending Flash to the server and executing it like a CGI bin kind of thing in a sandbox and stuff. And so we're actually working on you know, the full media server and stuff like that that supports patent-free codecs as well as proprietary ones. It already handles a half dozen different protocols, um, lots of other stuff. I'm adding support for actually PHP and Python, CGI bins within the media server, so you can do really cool stuff. Like, you can send it Python code and execute it in the server in a sandbox, not having to have it pre-installed, which is a kind of a cool feature that Adobe actually did. Um, and it's really in heavy development, and anybody who wants to work on media servers, I would love to have some more volunteer help, because it's been kind of a solo project for me lately. Um, 
this one's sort of out of the way, but one of the big things is we did a lot of work on the LLPC, which is what brought a lot of these issues with multimedia codecs because we started shipping XOs all over the planet. Everybody said, but YouTube doesn't work because they couldn't ship the stupid codec, um, which I think is in another slide here in a second. But, um, but that was actually a fun project until Nicholas ruined it. Um, <laughs> I think he started it at once, but he basically killed his own project as far as I can tell. Um, so codecs. So Flash right now uses MPEG-3, MPEG-4, Nelly, Moser, and Sorensen. FLV, which YouTube uses, is just a container format. It's not really a codec. Um, we also support you know, Speaks, Vorbis, Fiora, and then we're going to be using Kelp for our video conferencing support instead of Nelly, Moser. Um, and then the big thing is that we had an inability to redistribute Ganache on anybody's machines. And so um, I just literally... A few days ago, created a new website with John Gilmore called uh, CodecPatents.org, and we're actually uh, launching a campaign to do legal clean room implementations of proprietary codecs. Um, I think it's it's, it's got to happen. So, um, so anybody who's got a little time, what we'd like to do is well, for one thing, we could use some sysadmin help on CodecPatents.org, but there's a lot of research that needs to be done by the community for prior art. We saw how powerful Grocklaw was, and we want to do the same thing with multimedia codecs, because as you get into the patents, they're bogus, a lot of them. Nobody's just ever bothered to do anything about it because they're scared to death. Um, it's a little more complicated than that. I agree more than a little more complicated, but people just... Uh, I, oh, it'll cost you $600 million. I'm like, yeah, we might as well get started now. Um, <laughs> as Jeremy said, we're a nonprofit. What are we going to do? Get sued? <laughs> we can have my old Toyota truck, you know? <laughs> um, so when people ask how they can help, um, the Ganache Project is interesting. We actually have a lot of non engineers on the Ganache Project. It's one of the fun things of doing free software is the community of active people that are doing documentation, translations. We're really big in translating and supporting multiple languages because it's important and stuff like that. So we're really big in the translation. So if you speak a language that we're not supporting right now, please send us a translation for Ganache. That way all the error messages show up and you can actually read them. Um, we do a lot of testing and feedback from people um, because they run the Adobe Player and we can't. And so without our volunteers running the Adobe Player saying, oh, on this with Ganache, I had a pink border, but with Adobe, I had a red border. We go, oh, thank you, you know. And so without people testing us with the Adobe Player compatibility, we would not be making much progress. And this is where volunteers are so wonderful. Good bug reports. They do a lot with us. We can't run the Adobe Player. So they say, well, the Adobe does this, Ganache does this. Good bug reports are really useful, even if you get thousands of them other than the YouTube one, um, for helping us make a better project. And we want a better project and more stable and all that. Um, documentation writing and updating. I wrote a user manual, a tutorial, and a reference manual. Nobody's ever touched it since. I think it needs to be updated. <laughs> uh, do, you run your, do you run tests that compare the equivalent of Ganache and Adobe Grand Flash? Well, we can't exactly. Well, I mean, do you want me to run a build block that runs Flash? Well, the problem, though, is it ha we can talk about this later, but it's really hard to test a graphical application. And so most of our tests are much more unit level and uh, integration level than they are actually at the top level because, you know, t to X11, Flash is just a big bitmap. It can't tell where there's a button. It can't tell anything. And I've been doing some work on trying to work around this problem but don't have a good solution yet. Um, but so, but so, so volunteers running the Adobe Player by hand is our automation, and they're very useful to us. Sorry, I was going to say, maybe, I believe one of the problems is that the Adobe's license on the player prohibits being run as a, uh, on a server, as a sort of a queryable node, you have to run it personally. And 
so that's, that could that's be. Yeah, if he's never seen. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. And then, of course, um, anybody here who plays with BuildBot, I'm really sick of being our BuildBot build farm maintainer, so I'm dying for a volunteer. Um, I'm just sick of it. I just did the release, which was like you know three weeks of build farm hacking. And basically, um, here's a bunch of different resources, URLs, for getting more information on, on Ganache, of course. Um, GanacheDev.org is our big developer site where much of the technical detail is. Um, GetGanache.org, our build farm cranks out devs, RPMs, binary tarballs, and source snapshots every night, if it works. Um, OpenMediaNow.org is our nonprofit. If you want to give us 10 or 15 cents or a six, free six-pack or something. And, and, of course, the Pound Ganache channel on, on Freenode is pretty much a great spot for uh, kind of front-end technical support. So anybody got more questions? I wouldn't put it that way, but yeah. We're definitely catching up because most of their features are actually not truly re-implementations or format changes. They're often stuff that we actually already implemented. They added high-quality video support for YouTube. We had had it for a year already. We couldn't figure out what the big deal was. <laughs> so who's chasing who? Somebody just suggested a, um, a soundbite on the IRC. Flash ain't done till Ganache won't run. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a strategy you think they're likely to pursue? You don't know. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to suggest something. I'm sure, I'm sure that you already thought of this, but if you use part of the money from that Open Codex project or some of the other projects, take a small amount and hire a few professional search engine optimization people to try to make Nash come up just as often as Flash in a lot of people's you know, Google searches. Because this is really fabulous. I have not thought about it for a long time. I wasn't paying attention to it. I mean, the biggest problem is that the URLs for Flash content in almost every web page on the planet have the Macromedia and Adobe URL embedded in it as an attribute. And unfortunately, there's millions and millions of those. And that's there are people whose job is to fool the Google page rack and yeah. you can pay them to do it. What I really want to see is have IceCat look for www.macromedia.com and instead of going to their plugin page, send you to get Ganache to get a Ganache XPI for your browser. <laughs> and that should be possible with IceCat, I would hope. Right, you have a Firefox plugin that like, does that in, generically for a lot of sites. Uh, that, uh, it's a free software project. We can all do with it what we want. We take contributions. <laughs> Thank you very much. for listening to Hacker Public Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.